So how y'all doing this morning? Awesome. 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 Uh, today, I, I just can't get past, and, I, and I, honestly, I don't know that we'll be past it next week either. Um, I just can't get past this particular section. Um, as we're going through the kingdom of God, we've gotten to, to Saul and David and Samuel and the temple. And so I'm just kind of hovering right here for a minute. It's, uh, it has a lot to show us about God's kingdom. You know, God has uh, chosen to reveal himself to us as a king. He's chosen to reveal himself to us as father. Um, but king is one of the ways that he's chosen to, to describe himself to us. And here is this, this birth of a, a kingdom on earth where he takes a group of his people and he brings them to himself and he creates a kingdom by anointing a king. Now, they had asked for a king um, because they had rejected God as their rightful king. So it's not necessarily a good thing. Um, but nevertheless, God did choose to give them an earthly king. And so he gave them Saul, as we've talked about. And then after Saul, he rejected Saul because of his, because of his heart. Um, Saul's heart was non-repentant. Um, he would sin. And God knows that we all sin. But then when confronted with his sin, Saul had no desire to actually own responsibility for his sin. He didn't choose to grieve over his sin. And he didn't choose to repent of his sin and as we see the story of Saul, his sin continued to grow worse and worse and worse against God. God said that he rejected him and chose someone else, David, because of his heart. And we see David's heart because David sins just as badly as Saul does. But when David is confronted about his sin, David repented. David grieved. David changed because he actually had a desire from his heart to please the God who made him. And so then after David, we come into Solomon. Um, and Solomon, we're not going to spend today's sermon on Solomon. I'm just going to give you a quick little recap. Solomon started off, um, I say he started off well. He had, he had a really good strong point early in his ministry as king um, where um, he chose God, he, he was speaking to God, and he asked God for wisdom. Uh, I'm sure most of you remember that. Solomon prayed for wisdom, and God said, because you've asked for wisdom and you didn't ask for wealth and you didn't ask for the, de the, the defeat of your enemies, I'm going to give you wisdom, but I'm also going to give you wealth, and I am going to give you the defeat of your enemies so that you will have security and you will have peace in your own time. So we see Solomon having a really good strong side. We see Solomon having a, a place of his heart where it was in the right place. But we also see Solomon, as we see in all of the scripture of all the different people that are, we're told about in the scripture, we also see their sinful sides as well. We see Solomon, uh, the people ask Solomon to, to um, ease the tax burden that had been placed on them. And the wise, the wise older people in, in the kingdom that he had asked for for wisdom and guidance from, they, they also told Sol Solomon, yes, if you will ease the tax burden of these people that your father laid on them, then they will serve you gratefully and they will give their allegiance to you. And, but his young friends who weren't, didn't care about the people and didn't care about what was right, but they cared about what self, they said, no, 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 no. Don't ease the tax burden. Make it stronger. Have more money come in. Bring in more money. We don't care about them. And Solomon went, that way, and then, of course, the kingdom was divided. And so, but God promised that it wouldn't be divided in your lifetime. It will be divided after you die. So we see that Solomon had a sinful and bad side as well. But you think of this, oh, and, and the one big thing, um, probably the worst, it is definitely the worst, I'll say the definitely. The definitely, the worst part of Solomon is with all of his wisdom, all of his wisdom, he wrote uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. It talks about wisdom. talks about everything is meaningless. He, Solomon was considered the wisest man in the world. Okay? And as he got older, he had a bunch of wives. It's not their fault. Don't, don't hear me wrong on this. I'm not trying to point blame like, like Adam and Eve did. He had a bunch of wives, and they drew his heart away from Yahweh as God to their gods. And Solomon chose to do that. Solomon chose to let his heart be drawn away to others and to be drawn away to other gods. And then Solomon erected uh, 
uh, temples and, and all these different things, Asherah poles and things for these different gods. And it says that at the end of Solomon's life, his heart was drawn away and he worshiped other gods. So we see Solomon's life end on a really, really bad note. That he abandoned worshiping God and he began to worship other gods. Even with all his wisdom. So if that's just a little side note to let you know that um, intelligence or wisdom, and, and let me quickly tell you the difference. The difference between intelligence and wisdom, intelligence is, you define it however you want to, intelligence, smart, however you want to define it. But wisdom is, no, is not smart, it's not book smarts. Wisdom is knowing good from evil. Wisdom is knowing right from wrong. So when the Bible talks about wisdom, it means knowing good from evil, being able to distinguish between what is right and what is wrong. That is, what, that is what we mean here when we're talking about wisdom. Even though Solomon was the wisest person on earth, even though he had pursued all these different things in life, and even though he knew right from wrong, he still chose to do wrong. So don't, um, don't necessarily put your confidence in someone just because they're smart. Don't, uh, there's so many things I want to say, and I just don't think we're, I should, but don't don't give away your your knowing your ability to choose right from wrong to other people because you think they know more about the subject or because they have some degrees or whatever. And the same thing applies here. Don't live, don't live your life and choose what you believe about God because you think that I somehow know more about the scriptures than you do, that I have somehow got it all figured it out. And so if I say it, that's what you need to do. And that's how you need to live. No, 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 that, that doesn't apply here either. Because I've said it many times before, and I'll say it again. When you stand before God at the end of your life, you will stand alone, period. And when I stand before God at the end of my life, I will stand alone. Now, I say alone. Keep in mind, I won't be alone because who's going to be beside me? Christ on my behalf as my representative. So I will not be alone. So please, I, I misspoke that. But my point is there will be no other humans there with me to give an account for my life. And so I can't look to the pastors who came before me. I can't look to Ravi Zacharias, which you know I'm a big fan of Ravi. I mention him all the time. I quote him all the time. You won't get any quotes from him today, but, but the point is I'm a big fan of him. But no matter what they say, no matter how smart I think they are, no matter how right they are convinced they are, if I'm reading the word of God and I believe the word points this way and I believe the word is teaching me such and such, then I have got to go with it before I go with anything anybody's told me. Because they will not be there to on the day of judgment when I give an account for my decisions. You have to give an account for your decisions, yours. And so you need to make every decision and every belief and every theological point you, you've, you hold on to, you've got to be convinced that you believe those are true based on the word of God. Now, I would love to walk through any of these things with you I would love to help explain any of these things to you. I would love to give you my view of any of these things. But you must be convinced of what you believe. Because if you're not convinced, you're not going to act on it. And if we don't act on it, what difference does it make? What difference does it make? So, all right, I got off on a tangent. We're, we're talking about the temple, which hasn't seemed to come up yet. Um, <laughs> Solomon, even though... He is the reason the kingdom split and divided, which is an awful, awful legacy to leave. Awful. Solomon, even though he abandoned worship of God and began to worship false gods at the end of his life and turned his back on God. That's an awful legacy to leave. Awful. Even despite all of that, God chose to allow him to build his temple. Think about that. Even despite all of his sinfulness and all the wrong he did and the legacy he would leave, God still allowed him, instead of David, a man after God's own heart. He allowed Solomon, whose heart would turn away from God, instead of David, whose heart would remain towards God. He allowed Solomon to build the temple instead. 
Now, immediately that just makes me think of Paul. Paul went around killing Christians, and even so, he allowed him to write the majority of the books in the New Testament. All I'm trying to point out here before we get into this is that God is a compassionate, loving, forgiving God, and we need to keep in mind that the miracles and the wonderful things we see happen and unfold in the Scriptures are not because we are oh so good. They're not. Because God can take people whose heart is completely devoted to Him like David, and He can take people's hearts who will turn from Him and do exactly what He doesn't want them to do like Solomon, and He can use them both for His unfolding glory and the pouring out of His Spirit and His presence among us. So let's not ever get caught up on this idea that, that we this has anything to do with us, because it doesn't. All right, before we jump in, I'm going to go turn this fan down, and uh, we're going to pray. All this is a pre before the sermon, by the way. Like, we haven't, we haven't gotten to the sermon yet. And we'll, we'll see if that's right. I have no idea. Yeah. Okay. Do y'all want me to... Y'all good? I'm just, I just tried to change mine. Okay. All right. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you, and Father, we thank you for your love for us. Father, I pray that as we study your word, that you would clear our minds... Give us as well, give us wisdom to know right from wrong, to know and to know what it is that you're trying to teach us in your word. Help us to see clearly what you are trying to teach your people when you wrote it and what you are trying to teach us as well today because we know your word is living and eternal. And Father, we know that the th same things that you're trying to teach everyone then is the same things you're trying to teach us now. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I... um. I put in here a lot of scripture. And so my goal was actually not to do all that talking that I just did. My goal was to read a lot of scripture. So I think I'm going to try to change it up. I think I'm going to try to kind of sift through and, and, and pick some important points to read to you. So if I'm standing here and just kind of looking like this, you know, just bear with me. Um, but we're going to start off with Exodus. Uh, if we're going to talk about the temple. Now, Solomon built the temple. The temple was the place where God come, came to dwell in the midst of his people. But if we're going to talk about the temple, we really just need to look back to the tabernacle. Because honestly, the temple is just a, and, and I'll get to that in a minute, but the temple is just an a improvement of the tabernacle. The tabernacle itself is where the scripture spends a lot of time talking about the tabernacle and its purpose and what it is. And so the tabernacle was mobile. But let's just look... Um, the tabernacle was built so that God could move around and dwell with his people. Let's look at Exodus 29, 45, and 46, these two verses real quick. God said, I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. And they will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt so, so that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So God said very clearly what his purpose was. Now, he built this tabernacle so that he could dwell among his people. And he brought them out of Egypt because in Egypt, as slaves in Egypt, they were in slavery to worshiping or, or, or commanded to worship all of these false gods. And God said, no, no, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. I'm going to rain down ten plagues against their gods because that's what the plagues were. Each plague was against one of the Egyptian gods. I'm going to, in essence, fight against the Egyptian gods, show that they have no power and that I have all power, but I'm going to bring you out of Egypt, and I'm going to live and dwell with you so that you can freely, with nothing holding you back, you can freely worship me as your God, and you will be my people. And we will be a light to all of the nations on earth so that all the nations 
can look at us and see that I am God and I desire to be with my people and you will point them to me so that all the nations on earth can come to me. So he said, I brought them out of the land of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. God's desire from the very beginning, if you go back to the Garden of Eden, God's God's desire was to dwell among us. It said that God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He dwelled among Adam and Eve. And then when he brings out the, the Israelites out of Egypt, he said, I brought them out of the land of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. God's heart is to be with us. It's to be with us. Now, does that mean that we are somehow more important than God? Absolutely not. That's nonsense. But it does not deny what he said, that he desires to be with us. And you say, well, you can't say that. You have to say he desires us to be with him because he's all focused about him. And, and I hear that a lot. I'll be honest. I hear that a lot. But God has shown us perfect love. And what is perfect love? Perfect love is not self-seeking love. Perfect love is self-sacrificial love. And we know that that's the kind of love that God has because he has shown that to us. He sacrificed himself in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. He came and served us. He is perfect love. And perfect love is self-sacrificial, not self-seeking. And that's the kind of love God is showing us here. That he wants to dwell with us. Not because we're somehow perfect or great or deserve it, but because he loves us. I mean, I, I don't have kids, but I'm going to say this in confidence, as if I do. And I know exactly what I'm talking about. And you tell me if I'm wrong. Kids are not perfect. <laughs> but you love them to death. Right? God knows God knows we are not perfect we are very sinful but he loves us to his own death he loves us to death and he does believe it or not he does actually desire to be with us Not because we're special, but because he loves us so much. And that makes us special. It's not because of anything to do with us. It has everything to do with him. Every good quality about us, every good quality about us is because of him. That we're made in his image, that's because of him. Any, if you think of, please don't speak out loud on this one. But if you think of someone that you can think of that you just think is the greatest person ever, and you think of somebody that you can think of that's just the worst person ever, everything about that person that you think is so great is only because every one of those qualities is a reflection of God. Period. They treat people so well. That's because that's a reflection of God. That's how he desires us to to treat each other. They're honest. That's a reflection of God. He has commanded us to be honest. And then everything about a bad person that you think is an awful person, everything is because they are not reflecting God. And so everything about us that we think to ourselves and we give ourselves a pat on the back every now and then because we think we're so good and we think we deserve, and that's, that's the key right there, the majority of people in this country, whether they believe in God or not, the majority of the people in this country think they deserve to go to heaven. It's the truth. If you ask the average person, hey, do you go to church? No. Do you believe the Bible is true? I don't think so. Do you think there's an afterlife? I hope so. Do you think you'll go to heaven when you die if there is an afterlife? Oh, yeah. I think God will send me to heaven. I absolutely don't think God would send me to hell. The average person thinks they deserve to go to heaven because they can think of bad people who they think deserve to go to hell. 
And they don't think that they fit that bill. It's just not true. The truth is, no one, not Mother Teresa, not the Pope, not Billy Graham, nobody deserves to go to heaven. Nobody. Nobody deserves because of their own choices and free will and the way they live. Nobody deserves to spend eternity being blessed by a perfect God, being protected by a perfect God, being shielded and surrounded by a perfect God so that no harm will ever come to them. No one deserves to be protected from all the wild animals. No one deserves to spend all of eternity in the presence of a holy, perfect, just God while at the same time demanding that he not pass judgment on them. None of us deserve that. That's why it's called a gift. It is a free gift of God. Why? Because we can't earn it. We don't earn it. We don't deserve that kind of treatment and love. We don't. But he chooses to give it to us freely because he loves us. But he allows us to choose to accept it or reject it. He allows us to choose. And everyone here and everyone who is going to hear this message has to make that choice. And you don't get into heaven because you were raised a Christian. You don't get into the kingdom because your family, as far back as you can remember, were Christians. You don't get it for any reason other than admitting to God that you know you've sinned against Him and asking God to forgive you of your sin because you know you can't make it right. And you trust in His only sacrifice, Jesus Christ, His Son, the only sacrifice, the only name under heaven by which we can be saved, the scripture says. <clears throat> and also at the same time know that his desire is to forgive us. And his heart and desire is to be with us. <clears throat> so, I'm going to jump ahead real quick. Exodus 31, 18. When he finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. Do you get that? This is just one of my favorite verses. And the re I'll be honest, the reason it's one of my favorite verses is because I'm a young earth creationist. I believe that the earth was, world is created in six days. And, and we can differ on that if you want to. That, I mean, that's not a problem. But I just like this verse because, because he ends up saying in Exodus, not in the creation account, but in Exodus, he said in six days, talking about honoring the Sabbath, in six days I created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh I rested. Therefore you are to honor the Sabbath. That is one of the Ten Commandments, inscribed by God's own finger in historical narrative, not in what many say creation is, is not historical document. It's just a, a, a document, to just a story to tell us kind of how things happen, but it wasn't historically accurate. But in Exodus, where all it is is history, it's just historical accurate, we read that God by his own finger said that he created the, the earth and everything in it in six days. <clears throat> that is completely tangent. I just, I just like this verse. But the point is, <clears throat> this idea that God hands Moses these tablets, okay? And then he tells Moses, and we're going to skip a, a bunch of this because it, a lot of this is, is where I've got I to jump forward. He tells Moses to go on down to the people. He's done giving the ten, ten Commandments, and he's done talking about all this. But for, for seven chapters, which there were no chapters originally, but in, in your Bible, when you look it up, for seven chapters, a large portion of the story of Exodus, he's talking about the tabernacle. And he's telling Moses how to build the tabernacle and all the dimensions and how he wants to do it. And, and he gives us a very long section about how he wants the tabernacle built. And it has to be built exactly how he asks. And we read through that and we read it and we're like, 
how in the world is this supposed to apply to me? Like, what, how does this apply to me? Like, okay, there's pomegranates and bells on the, on the, around the hem of the robe, and there has to be these horns, and it has to be this, and it has to be that, and it has to be this, and it has to be this, it has to be this long, and this wide, and this tall. It's got to be covered with this. And, and we read it in America today, and we're like, I know all of this is meant to teach me something, but I, I can't learn anything from this. Like, I don't know how to take this and go out into my life and apply this. Like, I just, I have no idea, you know. And there's, there's places in the Bible where we feel that way, like long genealogies. Well, like, you know, I've never in my life, as a pastor, around other pastor friends, can I say this openly? I have, I meet with other pastors on a bi-monthly basis. We have conversations. We stay connected. We have all kinds of pastor talk. We've never talked about the genealogy of anyone in this Bible. Like, I mean, we've never sat down and said, look, I'm really struggling with this. It says that uh, Methuselah's grandson, yeah, I mean, like we've never, never had a genealogy discussion. I've never been speaking to a lost person and said, well, let me share the genealogy with you. It's just never come up. Now we, I will recognize and I will admit when you read the genealogies in the New Testament, Matthew and Luke, when you read those genealogies, it was very important in that day. It was. Because we're talk, because the whole beginning of the new church, the, the church movement, was convincing Jewish people that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. That was the birth of the New Testament church, was going from synagogue to synagogue and convincing the Jewish people that Jesus was the Messiah. You can't do that unless Jesus is the son of David. You can't. So it was very important to establish that Jesus was, in fact, the son of David. That's important. But the point is, I'm getting off on a tangent. We get back here to this, the, all of this, this, tent, this tabernacle and how it's set up. And so we have seven chapters here. Then we have three chapters that tell a different story, and that's what we're going to focus on. And then we have another six chapters, another long section that's actually building the tabernacle the way that it was told to build the tabernacle, and it's almost... A, same thing. You know, so you spend a huge section talking about how the tabernacle is supposed to be built. Then you spend another huge section saying, okay, we're actually building it the way it's supposed to be built. And then there's three chapters stuck right in the middle. And at first glance, they seem very out of place, but they're not. And so we want to, because we're talking about the temple, which is a focus of the tabernacle, I want to focus on what is stuck right in the middle of God saying, this is all this. I want to talk about my tabernacle. And I'm going to stick something really important right there in the middle. And that's what I wanted to focus on. And we can't read it like I wanted to read it. I wanted to just read all three chapters, but we can't do that. Um, so let me try to see if I can, can jump through here. But the point is, he told, he told Moses, after he gave the Ten Commandments and, and after he, he, he gave them all the instructions about the tabernacle, he told Moses to go on down off the mountain because the people have rebelled against me. You remember this? He comes down off the mountain, and what's happened? In the meantime, Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days, and the people said, we don't know what happened to this guy Moses. We don't know what God did to him. He probably killed him because we know how scary this God is. You know, we can't go touch the mountain. Nobody can touch the mountain. Fire and smoke and all this, he's scary. And Moses, he, we thought he was a good guy, but I had that feeling that he really wasn't all that good like he said he was good. And then he went up the mountain, he didn't come back. And that just proves Moses was not as good as he was pretending to be. And God pff, wiped him out. So now that he's gone and we don't have this connection to God anymore, Aaron, Moses' brother, Aaron, who is the priest, Aaron, Make us a God that we can worship, that we can worship that brought us out of Egypt. And so Aaron says, hey, bring all your earrings to me. And he takes them and he melts them down and he fashions them into a golden calf. And he tells the people, here is your golden calf, the God who brought you out of Egypt. What? We do that. You know, we say, what? There's no way I could have done that. There's no way if I had seen the, if I had walked through the Red Sea, the, 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 the water split on both sides, if I had seen the 10 plagues, if I had come through all this and I seen God deliver me, there's no way I could then say, okay, thank you, calf. You did it. I worship you. 
There's no way I could do that. That's what we do. But I'm telling you, that's our first mistake when reading the scriptures. When you look back at people and you say the Israelites did this, I could never do that. We do the same thing all the time. We know what God has done for us. We could sit down, and if you haven't written them down, you probably should write them down. You could sit down and write down all the things that God has done for you in your life. And then two years down the road, you could get to this mindset where you're like, God ain't done nothing for me. And then you look to something else to to devote your time and energy. And that's what worship is, devoting your time to it, devoting your energy to it, devoting your resources to it. That's what worship is. It's saying, I worth this thing. I worship this thing. I give my worth to this thing. Anyways, they worship, they begin worshiping this calf. Moses comes down off the mountain. Uh Uh-oh. He's not happy. Then comes a very tragic, hard story, but you know, I don't skip things. Then Moses tells the people, he condemns them, he crushes up the golden calf, he pours it into the the river and makes them drink it. So it's real bitter. Makes them drink this powdered up, nasty calf that they had made for themselves. And then he says, anybody who is for God, come to me. And they came, a bunch of the Levites, it says the Levites came to him, to Moses. So in other words, Moses gave them a choice. Choose who you are for. God or for this calf or for whatever other God gave him a choice. So they came to him and then he told them, I want you to go throughout this camp and I want you to kill your neighbors, brothers, sisters, anybody, anybody who has chosen to turn their back on God, worship false gods. I want you to do it. And it says they did it. It says 3000 people fell that day. And we will read it in our modern eyes and say, This is awful. And the truth is, it is awful. And it's awful that it's gotten to the point that it has to be so awful. But if you step back and think about a couple things. One, that that was the death penalty for abandoning God and worshiping false gods. That was already the death penalty. And the people already knew that. Just as you know today, if you go and kill somebody, you could face the death penalty. You know that before you make the choice. And so you know what could be coming to you. But the second part is that we think they wiped out 3,000 people. That had to have been like everybody. But if you read right before that, it said how many people came out of Egypt. There were over a million We keep thinking in these small picture terms because we read these little cartoon pictures where it's just got like two guys and five guys in the background. You know, I mean, we do that. We grow up in Sunday school and we have a picture and it's just like three or four people. And in our mind, that's what we get. There are a million people. 3,000 people were killed and that's awful. But that's 0.003%. And so you got to put things in context. These are the people who have chosen to try to lead all the people away from worshiping God. And what happens if you lead a million people away from worshiping God to worship a golden calf? What happens to their souls forever? They all die forever. Forever. And so when you start to step back and you start to look at the situation, you have to realize, first, you should always give God the credit to say, okay, no matter what I read, no matter what I see, no matter what I think, first, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt that you are good and you don't do evil. I'm going to give you that benefit of the doubt first. That anything you choose to do must be good and not evil. And then I'm going to pray to the Holy Spirit that you help me to understand how every decision you did choose to make was, in fact, good and not evil. And we make these kind of decisions all the time. I mean, no, I haven't made a decision to to kill anybody. But you know what? My point is, as as a nation, we make these decisions all the time. As people, we make these decisions all the time. That if someone is going to kill a million people, that they rightfully deserve the death penalty. And so God is trying to say, look, this physical, temporary life that we're all caught up on is not the big picture. The big picture is not what's going to happen to you for 30, 40, 50, 100 years on earth. The big picture is what's going to happen to you for all of eternity. All of eternity. 
and abandoning me to worship false gods will lead to death for all of eternity. And so when you read the Old Testament, you will see over and over and over and over and over again that people who choose to do things that will lead to eternal death, eternal death forever, people who do those things, you will often see throughout the Old Testament, will receive physical death as punishment. You'll see that. Over and over, they will receive the death penalty physical death as punishment for things that will lead to eternal death. Why? Because they're trying to save people from eternal death. And that's more important than physical death. If you can save people's souls forever, that's more important than saving somebody for the next 30 years. It's more important. None of this is what I was going to talk about. I don't think you're going to get your sermon today. So anyways, they come down from the golden cage. I'm just going to have to, I think I'm just going to have to wing it from here because I don't know, I don't even know how far to go through here and get to my next stuff. I don't, I don't know. Um, but <clears throat> let's try this. Does that work? No. Did that work? Okay. So, the tabernacle was given to the people with the initiation of the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, the Old Covenant. We, we say Old Testament, New Testament. That's Old Covenant, New Covenant. So, with the giving of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, with the giving of it, how many people died? 3,000. We know that the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, cannot bring life, right? The, the law can only condemn us. It can only hold us guilty, which brings death. It cannot bring us life because you cannot obey the law. If you could obey it perfectly, then the law could justify you. In the same way it works today. If you go out here, we have laws. We have American laws. If you could live this life perfectly according to those American laws, then you could stand before a judge and hold every single law on the books up and say, I am justified according to these laws. I have not broken any law, therefore I do not deserve punishment. You could. But if you break one of them, then you no longer can be justified by those laws. You can only be condemned, right? That's, all, that's all, the only option you have left. And the giving of the Old Testament, the giving of the Mosaic Law, God said, here is my demand of holiness from you. I demand you to be perfect. And so you cannot live an unperfect life, all of us, and then hold up laws that say that you broke them and say to God, therefore I deserve life eternal. You can't. The law can only bring death. It can only bring judgment. That is why God's forgiveness, his mercy, and his grace is what brings life. So, we know that the Old Covenant was given to us and 3,000 people died. The Old Covenant only could bring death. The law could only bring death. But then, when we jump to the New Testament, when we jump to the New Testament, we read here, so those who accepted his message were baptized. This is Pentecost. This is the first public preaching. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about how many people were added to them? 3,000. And there's no coincidence there that the old covenant, which was the giving of the law, could only bring death, and 3,000 people died on that day. But then you had Jesus promising a new covenant in his blood. And then he comes down as the Holy Spirit into the apostles. And the apostles go out and they preach the first public preaching. And then the first New Testament church was born. And on that day, 3,000 people were given life. Because where the old covenant could only bring death, the new covenant can only bring life. Why? Because God desires to dwell among his people. Does that mean that the people in the Old Testament couldn't be saved? No. It means they couldn't be saved by obedience to the law. 
Does that mean that new people in the New Testament can't be, are always saved? What it means is, we, all right, I messed that up. But the point is, you couldn't be saved in the Old Testament according to obedience to the law. You can't be saved in the New Testament according to obedience to the law. Same point. Whereas it was God's grace and forgiveness bestowed upon his people who desired to be right with him was what gave through faith in him was what gave them life is grace and mercy in the Old Testament. It's grace and mercy in the New Testament, because apart from grace and mercy, there was no way for anyone to be saved in the Old Testament because the law could not save anyone. And in the New Testament, because you can't be saved by obedience, the only way is grace and mercy. That's it. There's been no change. The only change has been the actual sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The actual payment. Where in the Old Testament they were looking forward to a sacrifice that would pay and fulfill. And so therefore they had to sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. In the New Testament, that sacrifice has been fulfilled and made. Therefore, we no longer make sacrifices. Because if we were to continue to make sacrifices, then we would be saying that Jesus' sacrifice was insufficient. Now, the old covenant, the temple, the tabernacle, and eventually the temple was where God came to dwell in the midst of his people. And in the New Testament, the new covenant, the temple is our body where God comes to dwell in us, in the midst of his people. And so God didn't change his heart. God didn't desire to live in the midst of his people in the Old Testament and then scrap it in the New Testament with the scrapping of the temple. That's not what happened. He said our bodies are now. If we look at 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you. Now the Old Covenant temple, it mimicked the original creation. Did you know, this is neat. I don't know if you realize this. I, I searched it and I did I mean, unless I did my search wrong, I tried to do a good search. Um, I searched it. When you read, when God's given all the instructions about the tabernacle, and he talks about all the different decorations in the tabernacle. I want you to decorate it with pomegranates and and bells. And and you know what else he says that's all over the tabernacle, the temple? Cherubim. Cherubim. I mean, they're sitting over the the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, they're everywhere. They're cherubim. You know where else we read about the cherubim? In the garden. You know where else we read about the cherubim? Nowhere. Nowhere. I mean, it's quoted after the tabernacle. Ezekiel quotes it. Isaiah quotes it. It's quoted in the New Testament. It's mentioned, but really it's just the garden and then the tabernacle and the temple. What are the people, of, what are the people supposed to be getting from this? When you went into the temple or the tabernacle, it was as if you were walking back into the garden. You had the cherubim that were set up in the garden to keep you from coming into the garden. And then you had the temple where now we're through sacrifices, through atonements, through a special process, we can begin to enter back into that garden. But we have those cherubim as reminders That God is still a holy God and we are still a sinful people. And you have got to be careful when coming into the presence of God as a sinful man. And then there's pomegranates everywhere. Pomegranates are big in this. I didn't read about pomegranates in the New Testament. I mean, in the the Garden of Eden. That's that's where two things. One, of course there were pomegranates. And it it talks about almond blossoms in the tabernacle. It talks about all these things. And it's just this picture, this floral, gardeny place. Some people believe that the, the tree of life or the tree of knowledge of good and evil, depending on who it is, some people believe that that was not an apple, it was a pomegranate. You know, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil where they took that, the, the, the fruit and ate from it. Some people say it's a pomegranate. This is where they get that from because there's this pomegranate in the tabernacle. Now, I'm not going to make that distinction because... I would say if it represented one of the trees, it would more likely represent the tree of life than it would be to represent the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But that's neither here nor there. The Bible doesn't talk about it. I just thought I'd throw that in there if you've heard that before. It was a pomegranate. This is where they get it from. Point is, coming back into the temple was a reminder that God is allowing us to come back into the garden. 
where he has chosen to dwell with his people originally, and we are re-stepping back into that process. But there's still so many rules. The high priest could only come into the Holy of Holies once a year, and you had to have all these sacrifices, and only certain people could, could come in, and all these rules. But then when you get to the New Covenant, the New Testament, where Jesus himself was the sacrifice, now we see those rules being dropped, the curtain being ripped from top to bottom, that it's all opened up again, and that God has come to dwell in us as the temple. And then he gives us this promise of revelation in the New Testament where he's going to make the whole world new again, and everything's going to be like it was in the garden. And so this separation between us and God in the New Testament has been torn down. It has been broken. Not only can we enter into the presence of God, he literally comes to live within us. There is no better picture you can get of the separation being taken away. He's within our sinful flesh. And he can do that because the atonement of Jesus Christ is sufficient. It's sufficient. That's why he can do that. And there is no separation between us and God anymore. That when we place our faith in Christ, there is no separation from us anymore. That we are completely reconciled to him. And we must live that way. We can't continue as Americans in the 21st, right? We can't live. I get confused with centuries because they don't match up with the years. We, we, We can't continue to live in the 21st century as Americans as if... Now that I've placed my faith in Christ, oh, I'm, he's just, he's, he's all over me. He's angry with me. He's upset with me. And, and I, I, can't, I can't do this and I can't do that. And all, all that does is that's Satan coming at you, telling you, you're not really forgiven. Jesus' blood hasn't really cleansed you. You're not really free. God is not okay with you. There's a big separation between you and God. Don't you feel it? That's the kicker right there. Don't you feel it? When has feelings ever determined whether or not God's word is true or not? Never. Never. Our feelings do not mean a hill of beans to whether or not what God said is true is true. We cannot live according to our feelings. We must take a stand and convince our feelings that this is true. God said there's no separation between me and him anymore. God said I am reconciled to him. God said he is living in me. God said me and him, we're okay. God also said you and him, Satan, y'all aren't okay. I'm not the one that's got to walk around here worried. You do. Because when we are convinced that we are not in communion with God, when we are convinced that me and God are not good, how many people am I witnessing to? None. And if I do, what am I doing? Probably a bad job. Because I'm telling them, oh man, it's awful. I've, I, got, I went down to church, I got, went, got baptized, I got saved, I'm telling you, it's awful. My life is awful. That's what we do. When we don't stand firm, on what God said is true, is true. So what is God's desire? If we're just going to sum all this up, he desires to be with us. He desires to be with us now, and he desires to be with us forever. That makes me feel good. And I'm going to say this. We won't, we, we've gone way over, but I'm going to say this. There are a lot of scary things going on in this world, are they not? There always have been. When you read about the apostles in the New Testament, they all gave their lives. They were hunted down. They had their heads cut off. They were crucified. They were beat. They were stoned. Life has always been scary. But we have been immaculately and immensely blessed by God. This country, the flag that I'm so proud of for this country, the United States of America, God has blessed this country. And if you want to look at it, you can look at it through the eyes of the way he blessed Solomon. 
Have we been sinful as a country? You better believe it. You bet your bottom dollar we have. Do we have a great, perfect past? No, we don't. Has God recognized our sinfulness as a country? Yes, he has. Has God blessed us in spite of our sinfulness? You better believe he has. And if you don't believe it, go anywhere else to any other country in any time in history. Any time in history. Go back to the Middle Ages. Go back to the Dark Ages. Go, go to China. Go, go, go anywhere. Our country has been unbelievably blessed by God that we could day in and day out live in this country, freely stand up here. We could have a church building. We can own Bibles. We can talk freely about God and don't face a day-to-day threat of our lives being taken from us, of our kids' lives being taken from us because we profess Christ. And that is not true in so many places around the world. Today and always has been. I love my country. I love God. God has blessed us. Let's continue to be a blessing to others. The United States has been recognized as one of the world's leading missionary countries throughout all of history, throughout all of time, the amount of money that we invest and give and spend to send the gospel around the world, to have the Bible written in other people's languages, we are a workhorse for the gospel. Let's not let anyone ever take that from us. And it happens at an individual level. Let's always... Share and represent Christ to the world around us because it's his desire to be with us. And that makes me feel so good. And there are so many things that could take our lives. COVID, this right here. This right here. We're doing church different. We're doing life different. I get my groceries different. I order my groceries and have them put in my car. We do, we do life different. Why? Because people are dying and we know people we love that we believe that if they got it, they would die. But I'm telling you, as the church, and I'm praying. I, I'm praying harder for people than I've ever prayed in my life. I am, and I want you to know that. But I'm telling you, if I fail to prepare you to die, I have failed as your pastor. We all will die. And there is one thing that is most important, that we know we are reconciled and right with Christ before we get there. And I pray it's going to be many, many years for everyone here. I pray it's going to be a long time away. But we must be right with Christ today so that we don't have to fear that thing called death. We'll miss people for a little while, For a little while, we'll miss them. We'll miss them dearly. It's going to grieve us. We're going to break. We're going to cry. We're not going to know how we're going to get through some nights. But it's just for a little while. But if we know we're right with Christ and we share that with our friends and family who love us, the ones who are going to miss us when we're gone, if we will openly share that with them and let them know, I know I am reconciled to God. I know where I'm going when I die. And I know where you can find me after this world is over. If you will share that with the people you love, that will help them through their grieving process more than anything else in this world. And whether we think we're going to get it from COVID or whether we think it's just going to happen in our old age, which is the way we all think, It's all of us think we're just going to live a long old life and then that's when it's going to come one day peacefully. Regardless of when you think it's coming, you need to let them know now. You need to let them know now. Let them know. I know where I'm going and I'm not afraid of where I'm going because it's been God's desire to be with me from the very beginning and it's been my desire ever since I placed my faith in Christ to be with him unhindered with nothing holding me back. And I'm looking forward to that. And I'm going to miss you for a little while. But please place your faith in Christ. Please have that same assurance. That way we can spend all of eternity together 
in a new place, a new earth, at a table, and I'm a Baptist, and I'm going to say it, eating a doggone good meal together. I'm looking forward to that. I look forward when we're not doing all this anymore. I look forward when we're in that annex sharing a potluck dinner again. I look forward to that. But man, I am looking forward to sitting in the kingdom of God with y'all. Eating at a table with y'all in the kingdom of God. With Jesus. With people I love who have gone on before me. I'm looking forward to that more. I am. And I pray there's not a... I'm looking all around here. I pray there's not a single soul in this room that doesn't know for 100% a thousand sure that's exactly where you're going to be. But you know, there are people that we know that don't know that. They don't know that we're 100% sure and we don't know that they're 100% sure. And so I'm just asking, start with the people that you're close to. Start there. Have a conversation. Tell them how much you love them. Tell them how much you're going to miss them. But tell them how much you look forward to seeing them again. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And Father, your word from beginning to end is just a nonstop story of how much you love us. And how everything you do in the scriptures all comes around to this immortal, eternal plan that you have. That all of the things on this earth are just temporary and most of them are just distractions. But that every choice you make, that choice has eternity in mind. That you are looking towards eternity. You are looking at people's souls forever. And that has guided your decisions and it has all been driven by your love. And so, Father, we ask that you help us to understand when we come across things that are hard for us to swallow and difficult for us to grasp, that you help us to see it from your perspective and to know and understand that you are good and you are love and every decision you make is right and just and holy. Father, we thank you for the offer of forgiveness that you've extended to us. And Father, we thank you for being such a loving, loving Father. Father, we love you. Help us to be more like you each and every day. In Jesus' holy and precious and eternal name we pray. Amen. If you would please stand and join us for our last song. Amen. It was so good to see y'all again this week. Uh, I'm praying for y'all. I really am. Uh, Text me, email me if something comes up. You got a prayer request, something you want me praying for, I, I promise you. I'll, uh, I will be praying for you, and I'll add that to my list. And I look forward uh, to when things will eventually get back to normal. But in the meantime, I, like, I look forward to us taking these precautions so that we can get back together. Um, and we'll do it as long as we have to. Um, but let's pray, that, let's pray that, that all of this dies down and all these numbers go down. And let's pray that, that, we, that God will wipe this out. Um, from our country in a way that we can get back to normal the way we should be. Let's pray together. Father, we love you, and Father, we thank you for your love. Father, I just pray that you just just draw us, just hold us close like a parent holds their, chi- their child. Father, you have made it abundantly clear that your desire is to be with us in the midst of us, and Father, we know that you are in the midst of us right now. We see the amazing beauty of your sacrifice. We see the walls that it tore down, that your sacrifice enabled us to be together in, in, in closeness and proximity that has never, it was never dreamed of. Father, we know we don't deserve it because we have sinned against you. But Father, we are thankful that you are a forgiving and merciful and loving God that you desire to forgive us. And so, Father, we accept your forgiveness. We accept it and we don't deny it. And Father, I pray that you will help us live it out as a reality in our life, that we can live free. The scripture says that you make us free, that your word makes us free, that we know that we are no longer in condemnation. We are no longer under your wrath, but that we are free. And it feels good to be free. So Father, help us live that way. Help us live a life that just just 
exudes you, that it, it just that you are just can be seen through the way that we live to the people around us. Help us to love our neighbors better and help us to love our families better. Help us to be more like you. We love you, Father. We thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' holy and precious and eternal name we pray. Amen.